Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Childhood wounds show up in our leadership today. And if there's anything I've seen over 20 years is the way leaders react to whatever circumstances Their perspective that they choose has everything to do with what happened to them in childhood. And we've all sustained some type of wound, some more serious as trauma, but I bring a lot of research that shows that those formative years will impact your leadership and they will impact it in two ways. It will give you a superpower and it's probably why you've been able to rise to a leadership position, but it also comes with it a liability or a blind spot. First of all, out of all the books on my shelf, this is the one that like stands out the most. So you did something really cool. good there. This freaking thing stands out. It's more yellow than any of the yellow books behind me. <laughs> yes, yes. I had a good cover design. I was very happy with my publisher and what they came up with. I was a fan of it from the day that I got it. And I got it before we ever had our first conversation a few months ago. But before we get to all the glory and the, and the glamour and everything awesome about your book and how you're impacting the world in a great way, I'd love to go back in time a little bit, Susan. And what is a challenge that you have faced sometime in your life that you may be able to share with our audience? Yes. You know, it was sort of a series of challenges and crises that led me to do the work I am doing today and maybe the person I am today. But it might be helpful to share because I think it's an important story for anyone who feels a bit lost and not sure what is my purpose? What should I be doing in the world? And my journey through that started with law school. I went to law school at Harvard and did not end up practicing law. But what I found was when I had my summer internships that this career was not going to be for me. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I had a lot of loan debt I was graduating with and I needed to have a good paying job to pay that off. And there was no hope of someone paying off my loans for me. <laughs> so so wow. I needed to go ahead and find something. And so I ended up going into consulting and doing strategy consulting. But what I learned is law taught me a really important, it wasn't wasted. And this is sort of the message I want to hit home. Going to law school was not wasted by any stretch. It really honed your ability to make distinctions. And the use case of that with law is the ability to make distinctions between case law. But in executive coaching and leadership development, it's really about making distinctions in mindset. So I take that same skill that was really honed in law school and apply it just to a different use case around how we think. I went from there to BCG and worked. I was one of their first non-traditional hires, and that was challenging for sure. I was working with a leader that no one really wanted to work with when I came in. It was a free market system. And the newly promoted 
case leaders would select the new associates coming in. And because I started late, because I took the bar in New York in case I wanted to practice, I came in and I got assigned to the guy that nobody was interested in working with. Holy cannoli. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which was hard because here I am, a non-NBA traditional hire, and I think I was also kind of, hmm, I, she's not a slam dunk. We don't know what she's going to be able to do. And I think that my first work experience was really challenging. And I did not receive a good grade on my first case. And coming from, you know, I had straight A's in undergrad at Carnegie Mellon to graduating cum laude at Harvard Law. My first work experience getting a poor grade was quite upsetting. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Well, fast forward, I ended up leaving BCG three years later, and I did get some great experience there. It wasn't all bad, but it was my first experience of what poor leadership and how it can knock the wind out of your sails for bright, eager talent ready to go, hardworking talent ready to go. And I went from there into NBC television thinking, maybe I just need to go not be a consultant, but go work within a company and that would light my fire. And I had some good experiences and some very bad experiences as well, as some of which I write about in the book. And I left that feeling like, wow, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Here I am now at this point, 30, and I haven't had good work experiences. In fact, I'm so sort of burnt out that I decided to do something that was kind of crazy. And I went to get a master's in drama from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art because what? that what? lit my fire. Like that I was passionate about. Now that was a pretty crazy move. People thought I was crazy and I was thinking I was very crazy, but I was not feeling very motivated to do the work. Nothing was lighting me up. I had several really bad poor leadership experiences, but you know, I didn't know why I was doing it, but now it all fits together perfectly because when I was in drama school, I learned so much that could be applied to leadership and how as an actor, you have to show up authentically. You have to deal with that inner critic, that voice inside your head, because otherwise you're going to be worried about the guy's cell phone going off in the front row. You're not going to be able to be present with your fellow actor. And so actors really have to work on that. They have to work on empathy skills. They have to work on really seeing things from different perspective if you're going to inhabit the character. And all of that, all of those experiences set me on the path for what I've been doing for over 20 years now, which is leadership development and really working with executives to both transform their leadership, because I remember what it was like to be under poor leadership and how disheartening that was but also how to free these leaders from mindsets that are holding them back from being the true, impactful, extraordinary people that they can be. So it all comes together in the end, but I definitely had a crisis of what am I supposed to be doing? I'm highly educated with this amazing background, but I'm not happy with my work and what is my purpose. Wow. That was an amazing story told in a couple of chapters. I'd love to unpack a couple of chapters, starting with, first of all, graduating with honors, Carnegie Mellon, and then cum laude at Harvard. So on paper, 
you're like the ideal person. Everyone wants to hire you. Everyone wants a piece of whatever it is you've got to offer. Everyone wants what you have to offer. You've proven it through a lot of hard work. And then you get to this place with leadership that might not be ideal for such a high performer and high achiever. So you said it might have taken the wind out of your sails. Can you describe that process a little bit of when you first got there, you got the tough boss assignment. How did that go for that three years to just continually just punch you and knock the wind out? Because I'm curious how you felt during that time and how you managed yourself in that time, Susan. Yeah, I think well, one of the challenges, granted, this new leader had never had leadership training either, right? And he was used to being a independent contributor. So he didn't know how to lead me. And he was busy now with more than one project. So he left me to sort of flounder. I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I was doing my best and would then come in and sort of, they say this management by seagull, you know, you come in and you kind of crap all over the place and then you leave. So that's what we'll do. People <laughs> nice. But I always remember the review I got from him. And one of the comments was, appears young. That was written in my review. And I'm like, well, of course I appear young. I'm 25 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Now I look young for my age in general. Like I'm in my fifties at this point. So most people are shocked by that, but let me tell you. I can attest, you all look fifties. This is good. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I can tell you back then I really looked young, but what am I supposed to do with that? Is that feedback that I'm supposed to what do I do with that? Right? I, yeah. How do I improve on that when I am where I am at that stage? But the real impact it had was then, wow, boy, did no other case leader necessarily want to work with me from there because not only was I the non-traditional hire and very risky, they don't want to fail on their projects, but now I have a bad grade and how am I possibly going to be able to get the next one? And it was bad enough that the way I got out of it was I decided to work in another office, even though my home office was in Boston, I decided to work with a case leader in Dallas where I had a fresh start. And she was extraordinary, actually. She was amazing. And she also introduced me to the first concept of coaching by the way she led. And I really don't want to presume that I had all bad leadership experiences because I did have good experiences that were towards the tail end. But the first initial, I would say at least a year and a half was definitely my rough experience entering into the workforce. I love your resilience here because you got the feedback. It wasn't very clear and specific, and it can be deemed as kind of a black mark on their resume, even though there was nothing really tangible and specific about it. But you found a way to get to a place and through divine providence or your hard work initiative, whatever it was, you found a leader that then became a really good leader and they planned that seed of coaching. So something good did come out of something that was incredibly challenging. And that's one of our podcast values is look for the good and what's hard and what's challenging. So something did, whether it just fell in your lap, which I doubt that it fell in your lap, knowing you already, I know you made it happen some way. So you're there, you were making it happen. You were there for three years. And then Man, Harvard educated, you decide, you know, I'm going to go and get a master's in a completely different field. 
And I'm curious, when you were going to get your master's in drama and acting, how many other people there were like Harvard educated and you're business savvy and consultant? I mean, I wonder how you stood out in that group. I mean, you stand out already as it is, but I wonder in that group how you might have stood out. Yeah, (laughs) I definitely did stand out. Most were younger at that point. I'm going at age 30 and they were much younger. There was at least one other person that was around my age and we became fast friends and still to this day have a great relationship. I just love learning, bottom line. So I relish a new opportunity to learn something and use my brain in a different way. And that's what it was for me. I knew I had a passion in that arena. I wasn't sure how I was going to use it. It was definitely a scarier move for my career to do that. But man, it's a differentiator now. So I do think the challenges that we face, they do make us stronger, without a doubt, and they bring a wisdom that cannot be replicated and also a confidence that you can weather the storms that you need to weather because without dealing with the challenges, that's why I feel bad for, let's just say, younger people where their parents did everything for them. They've never had to face adversity and then they have their first adversity and it's a crisis. We need to be building those all along the way and not take you know, we don't like to see people suffering, but you don't understand the suffering and then the overcoming of that brings more power than eliminating the suffering to begin with. Mm, That's wisdom right there. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that you have the knowledge, but you have a lot of action and experience to back it up. And that's what leads to wisdom from my perspective. So you gave us the masterclass already. You were around the age of 30. You started in the leadership development space. What was that first year like in leadership development for you, Susan? Oh my gosh, that was also kind of drinking from a fire hose. I went to work for a boutique leadership development consulting firm, and I worked for an incredible leader who was also very challenging and tough. So it was a mixed bag. I learned so much from him. He was more of a perfectionist. And here I am for the first time leading team engagements and leadership development programs and standing in front of a group. And I can tell you my first assignment, we were teaching, it was a two-day leadership development program for mid-level executives that were probably in their 40s. 50s. And here I am, I think it was about 32 at the time. I look younger than 32. I look like I'm in my 20s. And I'm sure they're sitting there going, what does this like young chicky have to tell us about leadership? Like, really? And the thing is, I'm very intuitive and an empath. And so I could feel that energy when I would be standing up there and it would shake me because I could feel the judgment of it. And it would allow me not to show up in the best way because my confidence wasn't there. And then you couple that with my boss in the back writing all these notes about like what, <laughs> what, what, what I needed to improve on, which ultimately served me because now I have such a skill in facilitating. I mean, I know that's my secret sauce, how I can move a group and work through that. But it was so intense that I remember, and I'm a pretty resilient person, but we would do these programs back to back, like two days and two days in one week so that my boss could just fly in and do them back to back and then leave. And by the end of the third day, I would just sit in my hotel room and cry 
because I was so exhausted. It's like being on stage for eight hours, right? Three days of that and three days of all that energy coming towards me and trying to overcome and say, no, I have value. It was definitely a proving ground for me. Wow. Well, you're really striking a chord here because I just came from three days of facilitating and today's the day back and I can appreciate what you're sharing. And I wonder when you're at that stage of your career, you're getting feedback from a boss. How open are you to feedback at that time in your career around the age of 30 and in your first year in leadership development? Yeah, I think I was definitely open to feedback because he was so impressive. I wanted to be like him. He was also an extraordinary facilitator. I was definitely open to feedback, but I think the amount of feedback was overwhelming. So I think that's something important as leaders. You know, you might see 50 different things that someone could be doing differently, but if you deliver that all at once, like a machine gun, it's like, where do I even start? And it was disheartening at times. I think it's important to know that people are where they are and really focus on what are two, three things that person should focus on to really improve. And you don't have to give the whole laundry list at the time, which is <laughs> what it was an experience like for me. And we're look, we're good friends since then. I know we've had lots of joking about that experience, but also I've expressed how grateful I was because he did both hold a bar for me and I could see what excellence looked like because he truly exuded that. But also, you know, <laughs> I had I had to go through that to know that I can handle almost any group now. That was another great nugget of wisdom. The amount of feedback is important. So thank you for gracing us with that. You hit on one of what I would call the core values of eternal optimism, which is gratitude. And I'm curious, is this something you've always practiced, Susan? Or at what point were you consciously aware that gratitude is one of your tenets? How do you respond to that? Yes, I would say it's a muscle that's been slowly developed over time. And looking and knowing that the best way, again, out of suffering is to be grateful for the experiences that we've had, even the ones that have been the most challenging. And I didn't know that when I was younger, though. I could be grateful for, you know, my car. I could be grateful for my apartment at the time. I think with wisdom comes, how can you actually be grateful for the dark periods of your life because of what they taught you? And I only Ooh. learned that later in life. Yeah. Well, just one after the other, that is another tenet of our eternal optimism is learning through the challenging and tough times to be grateful for it. And it can teach us something. And I'm curious when, I didn't learn that myself until later. And I'm curious when that started to show up for you, when you started to be grateful for and pay attention to all the hard stuff and what it's teaching you. I don't know if there was a sort of a specific time, but I think when I could look back and see the growth and know that I'm not the same person I was at 30, I'm not the same person I was at 40 because of some of the adversity that I faced and how it's changed me that I bring a, again, a resilience and a wisdom that only benefits others and my clients. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I'd love to move forward a little bit. And before we get to what you're creating and the excitement in the book, before we get to that, I'd love to ask you about somewhere in your professional leadership development career, there was a time when you had a really challenging case, you know, a leader who thought it was all their people, it wasn't them. There was a challenging person to work with. Can you share an example or a story about someone that was challenging to work with 
and how you may have helped them come to realize and make progress on their journey. Oh my gosh, there are many stories like that. I'm thinking, <laughs> like, which one should I tell? <laughs> In thinking through that. And, you know, I don't like to give specific client details. So what I like to do is sort of talk in a character composite. So let's just say, which is what's in my book. I have nine different examples, character composites of people I've worked with and their old playlists and how they shifted. I would say in particular, I don't know if you know the Enneagram, but I work with the Enneagram a lot. It's a model of the way I use it is leadership styles, and there are nine core leadership styles. So my style is called the enthusiastic visionary, which is a very optimistic person in general. That's type seven. But according to the model, and I have found it to be true, the biggest trigger for me could be the type one, which is the strict perfectionist or called the principled reformer. And certainly when I go back to the boss example that I just gave in leadership development, he was one of these type ones, right? So you can see how that would trigger me. But also then fast forward, working with type ones, I'm someone who comes from that there's multiple ways to do something. Whereas this type of individual would, there's one right way to do things. And I know the right way, right? So we have very diametrically opposed perspectives And in the model of the Enneagram, there's something that they have to learn from me and something I have to learn from them. So I think some of my hardest cases showed up in that model of the Enneagram were the perfectionists that I worked with. You know, I'm thinking one in particular was the way his perfectionism showed up was wanting to reform others. There are different varieties of the type one. We call them subtypes. Some are trying to perfect themselves and very hard on themselves. Others are more outwardly focused and trying to perfect other people. And so this particular leader got a lot of feedback about the criticality of the type one and how it would take the wind out of their sails. So I'm trying to work with that, but in their mind, it was always everyone else, right? It's not them. And couldn't even see that underneath it all, they have incredible anger because it doesn't show out as outward anger. It leaks through in irritation and criticism and resentment, but you can tell they're stuffing down their anger. The way I worked with him is to really get clear that irritation or frustration is a form of anger. So let's, if you don't want to say that you have anger living inside you, let's call it irritation and frustration. And let's start identifying why that shows up in a repeated pattern almost daily in your life. How does it serve you? And how does it harm you? And the more he spent time understanding that it is just a perspective that he's choosing because it's the irritation that things are less than ideal. Well, guess what? We live in a world that's less than ideal. So are you going to go through the rest of your life just always noticing what's not ideal and then choosing, and you have to remember this is a choice, choosing to be frustrated and irritated about it. Because what it's doing is creating a divide between you and the people that you need to connect with in your leadership and really in your family too. So that's a lot of the work we did was I think in any mindset, there's a price and a payoff. And we're usually more conscious of the payoff. It's why we do it. But we're not always conscious of the price. 
And I think illuminating the price of adopting that mindset, recognizing it is a mindset and it is just where the focus of attention is going, but you can shift that and letting people know that they don't have to be on autopilot anymore. They can shift that and shift the pattern. That's such an excellent answer. I'm so glad that you went to the perfectionist since I'm one of those recovering perfectionists. Thank you. You triggered something in my mind here, Susan, a quick side story. When I met Julie, who is now my wife, the very first day that we met, we met at a networking event. We went across the street afterwards and we had a glass of wine and she had just taken the Enneagram and they were studying it at the company she was working at. And she quickly told me what she was. She's a seven. And she quickly diagnosed what I am, a three. I don't even remember what the three stands for because I took the Enneagram later. I was not a three. I was also a seven. But she diagnosed me as a three. And our very first date we ever had, the Enneagram was the subject matter. So thank you for bringing that up. That was good. As it is mine too. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that's why you realize because you're a type seven, by the way, just as a sidebar, you're a type seven. And why is it that your podcast is called the eternal optimist? Because that know, is right? a signature. Type <laughs> you're, you're sharing some of these things. Well, definitely the optimism. Yeah. And I'm going to borrow some of your wisdom when you shared the phrase illuminating the price of what they're paying by being stuck in that place where they look at the things that are less than ideal and focus on that rather than, I would say, focus on the things they have achieved and what they could choose to focus on. So I love the way you brought that. I'm going to go back and listen to that. For those of you out there listening, this could be a great place to bookmark and backtrack for a minute or two because Susan just gave us a master class on working with what I would call recovering perfectionists, which is a lot of what I do too. So I just so appreciate what you just shared. That was excellent. And I think it demonstrated, not that you needed to, but it demonstrated your expertise in the field. I love to shift that expertise in the field that you just shared and talk about what are you creating now? What is out there right now that we could follow, we could learn from? Just share with us a little bit about where you are now and how we might connect with you and follow you, learn from you, Susan, please. Yes. Well, it's truly right now about the premise of my book, The Leader's Playlist, which is unleashing the power of music and neuroscience to transform your leadership and your life. In the book, what I talk about are two main tenets, and I bring a lot of research to bear on it. The fact that our childhood wounds show up in our leadership today. And if there's anything I've seen over 20 years is the way leaders react to whatever circumstances, their perspective that they choose has everything to do with what happened to them in childhood. And we've all sustained some type of wound, some more serious as trauma. But I bring a lot of research that shows that those formative years will impact your leadership, and they will impact it in two ways. It will give you a superpower, and it's probably why you've been able to rise to a leadership position, but it also comes with it a liability or a blind spot. And if you don't work to either have someone in your team that can see that blind spot and you be open to their perspective or work to widen the aperture, the periphery of what you see, it will put a ceiling on your leadership effectiveness and you'll have trouble 
continuing to scale. So there's this whole piece, but then there's this whole piece about music and the listeners are probably like music. What the, you know, but just remember I have a master's from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And what I discovered was how to use the power of music and its impact on the brain to create new habits and make change stick and make change faster. So I bring in a lot of research about the impact of music on the brain. You know, if you know anything about how they use it, music therapy for Alzheimer's patients who are unresponsive, you can't even communicate. They put on music from their era and then they come alive and they can hold conversation for 20 minutes, sometimes after the music ends. Well, what's going on there with the brain? And I got very fascinated. I used it in my own life to make some important changes I needed to make. And I started using it with my clients. So I use the term playlist, both figuratively and literally. And in the book, I have the examples and the example playlists of the leaders who have transformed. Mm. And what might be an example of one of the stories or chapters of the playlist? Well, like you said, I talk about the nine most common old playlists that, and each one is a story of a leader. Gosh, there's so many good ones. One in particular is the story of Olivia, who was a tech entrepreneur and was very hardworking, but used to going it alone. So when she had a small team, she did okay. But as she grew and as she scaled, she couldn't delegate the way she needed to delegate. She couldn't work with the leaders the way that she needed to. And she ultimately got replaced by the private equity company as the CEO that had invested in her company. And she was at a point of like, this was my baby and I lost it. Well, she had an old playlist through work together of I'm all alone. That was the underlying belief that was running her. And therefore, life showed up to her that way. She would lose team members. They wouldn't be as motivated as she was. There were lots of examples where she had all the justification, like, yeah, I am alone on this. But you have to look at that's actually a frequency you're broadcasting if you have that belief. And we were able to shift that belief for her, creating a new playlist that she used to get her into the emotional resonance that she has a team all around her. She likes some of the like old stuff. And I remember in particular, the song, It Takes Two by Rob Bass. (laughs) She would play that song. An example for her of what it means to be in total partnership and teamwork. And together you can create more than you can by yourself. Wow. That's an excellent example and actually making me smile because I remember reading that and I remember the song itself. It makes me smile every time I even hear it. You just brought up some CNC Music Factory in my mind when you said it takes two. That's uh, <laughs> <Yes>, right. <laughs> so thank you for helping me with my own playlist. What's on your playlist now? Like what is it that you might use to inspire yourself or to use to find that energy, whatever it is that you might listen to? Yes, I have a playlist called I Am the Love of My Life. And part of that work was to really spend time loving the light and the dark sides to me. And how can I be loving me the way I might love someone else? And it's been an incredible journey. And that playlist is super powerful of songs that remind me of what I truly love about me. I would recommend anyone, like this is a sort of a playlist for anyone to do, but how much time do we spend there? And this is from a true grounding perspective of that, not from like, 
the wounded perspective of I'm so great and I'm like arrogance. No, like truly, how does that infuse how you show up from everything for how you look at yourself in the mirror? What do you notice you do you criticize? Or are you looking to celebrate things about the process? And certainly as we age, this is so important and such an important practice for me to develop. Mm. Does it matter if I'm looking for music of that kind? Do I go into my childhood or something that really brings up the past, more the innocence of my youth? Or do I look at what's happening now in music? Is there any relevance to that, what I might search for my playlist? Yeah. So what we do in the process is we first identify what's the old playlist running you, the old pattern. You might be aware of it because you might be saying, why does this keep happening to me? Well, if you do notice a pattern, you definitely have a playlist going, an old playlist playing in the background. But you may not even be aware of that there was a pattern there. I mean, I certainly wasn't even aware that I had a pattern going because my old playlist was I'm treated unfairly. So what's important to do is to choose the song that best represents that for yourself. And that's why it's highly personal. So we want to look at, well, what is the best representation of that emotional feeling, which for me was being frustrated and left out, this feeling, you know, being left out of things. And in some cases, certainly in my personal life, betrayed. What is the music that best represents that? And then what is the new music? What is the place I want to be in? And so if I want to be feeling blessed, one of the things is like, I wanted to be feeling blessed and in love. So what music best represents that to me that I can actually feel those feelings while listening to it? And so whether it happens from your childhood music or whether it happens current music, it's to be on the lookout and to notice that music, and I write about this in the book as well, is affecting our brains far more powerfully than I think we are conscious of. And to be much more intentional about the music you select and that you listen to, because it is having an impact on you. I don't know if any of the Def Leppard songs that are coming to my mind from childhood are, are connecting, but I certainly do remember there was a Michael Jackson song, The Man in the Mirror, that really made me look at myself. And that really always gets an emotion and not questioning myself, but more thinking about you know, taking ownership and it gets me to smile. That comes to mind. Well, Susan, this has been excellent. What are other ways that we might find you on social media or how can we get a copy of your book that's out there? Where's the best place to do that? Uh, how do we find you? Yes, yes. Well, if you go to susandrum.com, you'll also see if you want to do this for yourself and not just read the book, I have a masterclass that you can go through where we give you a workbook and take you through some exercises to start you on the process to determine what is that masterclass. If you want to get a taste of it, you can even just go to my website and do the enlightened leader quiz that I have on there. It's seven questions and it's going to highlight what may be your superpower and your liability. And that's a free quiz. So again, it's S-U-S-A-N-D-R-U-M-M.com. I also have a podcast called The Enlightened Executive. And that is a great place to learn from other practitioners and other leaders who have walked their own journey towards more conscious leadership. And I think there are important examples for how people have done that. And I really want to give voice to those too. Awesome. Fantastic. Oh, and getting the book. I mean, you can go to the leadersplaylistbook.com, but it's also on the web on my susandrum.com website. So everything's there. Lots there to choose from. Lots of resources. 
Thank you, Suze. This has been fantastic. And there have been a number of really great nuggets of wisdom that you've dropped in the show today, and we greatly appreciate it. And we've made it to the final lightning round here. Three questions to wrap things up today. Ding, 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 lightning round time. Uh, first question, when you hear the words eternal optimism, what does eternal optimism mean to you, Susan? Strength, knowing that in any dark situation, you can find your way out. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe it's a major coincidence, but the second question is always, what is a song that inspires you or that gives you energy? You've already shared one. What might be another song that gives you energy or inspires you? Well, right now, I love that song, Megan Trainer. I'm a badass woman. <laughs> ah! <laughs> nice. <laughs> Just awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And last question would be, what might be a book or two? that have had an influence in your life, Susan? Wow, there have been a lot of books that have influenced me. One mentor of mine is Bill Adams, and he wrote the book, Scaling Leadership. And I think it's a very powerful book. They talk a lot about the 360 model that I use in our leadership development programs. And I think it's a powerful story of how people need to grow and develop from a reactive state of mind to a creative state of mind. Thank you. I've not heard it framed that way before. This is very intriguing to me. I normally hear people say reactive to proactive. Bill says reactive to creative. That's very fascinating. I'm curious about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's really about adult stage development. And that was from a Harvard researcher that studied just as children have different stage development, so do adults and how they think and how they orient themselves to the world. And most of the population is in the reactive state of mind, which is really, in a way, consumed by identity, ego and self-image. And it's the wound that we're running from. But into the creative state of mind, it's more about the meaningful mission that we want to create in the world. And we have a sense of wholeness within ourselves at that stage. Great. That's a great summary. Can't wait to check that out. And everyone out there, be sure to check out Susan's The Leader's Playlist book. And if you want to go even the further level, she has a masterclass you just shared, susandrum.com. Check that out. I will be taking the Enlightened Leadership Quiz on a Saturday after we get home from soccer. So I want to say thank you for sharing everything of yourself today, Susan. You've been amazing. You are much appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And so are you. I'm so impressed with the work you do. 